Welcome to The Lead from New Lines Magazine. I'm Faisal Yafai, and this is a podcast where we delve into the biggest ideas, events, and personalities from around the world. The increasing divide between liberals and conservatives in the United States grows larger every year. Americans are more partisan than they've ever been since the Civil War. Fears that a second such conflict may erupt are becoming increasingly mainstream. But the divisions within the right and the left may well be no less consequential. America's fate may well rest on the outcome of these internecine ideological battles for control of their respective political movements. Donald Trump could not have become president in 2016 had he not first spearheaded the far-right movement that took over the party and turned it into what it is today. Meanwhile, tensions between liberals and leftists continue to divide the Democratic Party. With me today is David French, a conservative political commentator, a columnist for the New York Times, and the author of the 2020 book, Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. He was one of the most prominent right-wing public intellectuals to reject Donald Trump. In 2019, the writer Sohra Bahmari wrote a piece called Against David Frenchism, thrusting him into the center of one of the conservative movement's most hard-fought factional battles. The battle lines drawn by their ensuing debate continue to divide the conservative movement today. David, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me. So tell me about so-called David Frenchism, since you've been dubbed uh, its figurehead. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. What is it? I guess I would have to say it has really two, co two components. One is the defense of the American classical liberal legal order. And then number two, th with civility and decency and not with a, a sense that the ends justify the means. So those were the... The two big critiques that Sora Bamari mounted against me were one is civility and decency are second order values in the middle of this culture war. In other words, that the ability to punch the other side in the face, so to speak, is, um, you know, you have to be willing to go that far. You have to be willing to abandon civility and decency right. because the stakes are that high. And then also, a and this is the bigger issue, really, the bigger issue is that America's problems are the result of America's commitment to classical liberalism, um, its commitment to being a liberal democracy, and that classical liberalism's emphasis on individual rights essentially degrades community bonds, um, degrades religious faith, and results in sort of the atomization of American life. And so mm. it's that liberalism itself is the problem. Um, so these are the two the two parts of his criticism and the the broader criticism. One is intellectual, and one is almost to do with the approach that people yes. might take, conservatives might take. So yes. I want to kind of take them in turn. Um, I wanted to start actually, I think, with the approach because that's the kind of thing that perhaps the audience can understand more readily. Yes, the approach that people like Ahmari. I mean, we're framing it as a David French Sahara Ahmari debate. But <laughs> right. It's really it sort of represents these kind of two factions. Um, to our ideologies, perhaps even. What do you think about the approach argument? Because your argument is very much about the importance of civility and the importance of coming together within the very large conservative movement. Yeah. So th this is a really, um, this is an argument that cannot be separated from Christian theology because Sorab is, he's a, he's a Catholic, I'm Protestant. We both have broadly, what you would say, broadly similar views, for example, of the authority of scripture, et cetera, et cetera. And one of my arguments 
um, in response to this argument that, well, the times are so, the stakes are so high and the times are so extreme that we cannot be too concerned with things like civility and decency. And it's no coincidence that this came up in the era of Trump, right. where civ civility and decency are not even on that man's radar screen. <laughs> yeah. right, right, right. And so, but he won. He beat, he beat Hillary Clinton. You know, he won in 2016. And there's this real sense of um, the conservative movement, which is early, or as recently as the 1990s, a number of prominent religious conservative outlets had pinned resolutions or statements on the importance of moral character in public officials. We're now sort mm. of having to eat their own words as they back to Donald Trump. And it caused yeah. a real division within the right, where on the one side, there are a number of people saying, look, the, as I said earlier, the stakes are high. We can't, we, can't, um, we can't allow abortion issues, for example, or all of these important issues. We can't allow for, we can't agree to lose because we're deciding to be kind, that mm. kindness can't be an impediment to victory. Right. And my response was, well, as a faithful Christian, that's not your call to make. You know, you, you're not a call. You don't have the ability to say that kindness is an optional so long as the stakes are high enough that um, if you look at the teachings of Jesus and his apostles, that you see at a time when Christians were far more persecuted than they are today. I mean, infinitely more persecuted than they are today in the United States of America. No one is feeding Christians to lions in the United States for entertainment and sport, right? right. And and what was the message given to far more persecuted people than exist today? It's exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. It's kindness, peace, patience, gentleness, self-control. God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power, not of our own power, but faith in the power of God. And, power, and love, and sound mind. Yeah. Yeah, and is that the the strongest argument do you think against the the type of approach that Ahmari wants to take? That a scriptural argument is the the strongest one. Yes, I think in, when you're talking, of course, when only when you're talking to fellow Christians, right? <laughs> so right, right, right. if you're talking to an atheist and you're making an argument from based in First Corinthians, they're going to be like, "Whoa, you're stealing a few bases here," right? Yeah, and so. But this is an argument that's incredibly important in, on the right because the right is disproportionately comprised. Uh, the most powerful power center on the right is the white evangelical vote. And so, so goes white evangelical America, so goes the Republican Party. And so this scriptural argument, this argument about Christian theology and morality is of paramount importance within one of our two great political parties. And it's also of importance with the with the uh, Democrats, but they don't have a distinct religious subgroup that's as important to their power as white evangelicals are to the GOP. So this is a this yeah, is the a reason. Sorry to interrupt, but the reason I brought that up is that I, I noticed that in your writings, you you don't you do make that argument, but it seems like you're much more interested in bringing the two sides together because you right. think that if you don't, if there is this polarization between these two wings. You think that it could break apart the Republican Party? Yeah. And actually, you think it might break apart America? Yeah. So, so I'm wondering which of those two you think is the stronger argument—the scriptural argument or this argument? Well, I think for for Christians, the the scriptural argument is should be <laughs> quite strong. Yeah. But then there's a pragmatic argument, and the pragmatic argument is one you've seen me make a number of places and times, which is on a number of fronts. 
this idea that you can punch your way to enduring cultural victory is just deeply misguided. It's mm. just deeply misguided. Um, many and enduring of the, is the, the operative word there, right? Because as right. we've spoken, Trump did punch his way to victory, might do so again. Right. He punched his way to victory in 2016. And then in 2018, the GOP suffered historic losses. In 2020, he lost. In 2022, the GOP had an incredibly disappointing showing, lost ground in the Senate, went, lost some unlosable races, practically. Mm. And, and so my point there was, on the one, yes, there is a, there is a principled reason why no matter what, you're committed to kindness and then there is a pragmatic reason why if you have a minority position, as a lot of social conservative positions are, whether it's a, a consistent pro-life position, whether it's a religious uh, a position in, involving some religious liberty doctrines or you name it, an anti-porn position, mm. you know what? You're going to have to persuade people. You can't yeah. punch your way to victory there. You're going to have to persuade people. And you do not persuade people, for pardon my language, by being an asshole. Mm. Right. That's you don't draw people to you in that way, except in, unless they're really like mind and they like to watch you punch other people. Right. And, right. and so there's an incredibly powerful pragmatic argument for demonstrating humility and kindness in public discourse. And that is you got to persuade. And then here's yeah. another pragmatic element of it. You're not God. You don't know everything. So who are you to presume that you can stride into any given room, opine with absolute authority on any given issue? And be right 100% of the time. Mm. And that's a very interesting way of putting it, because actually, when you think about some of the debates that conservatives are most concerned about, um, for example, overturning Roe v. Wade, right. uh, or as you said, what you might call the, I guess you might call it the pornification of society generally, yeah. premarital sex and so on. On one of those, perhaps you could you could put forward the argument that, yes, you do need to be harder about overturning Roe v. Wade. But on the other one, the pornification of society, which broadly, frankly, people like. I mean, right. they like the movies put out by Hollywood. They like premarital sex. They like the way that social relations have been, that are conducted now. You can't punch your way to victory with that. I mean, how would no. it even look? <laughs> no, no, you really can't. I mean, people will harden their positions. They'll view you as intolerant. They'll view you as a problem. And so you're having to connect with people. You need to meet them where they are, speak in the language that is persuasive to them. And I think that that's just persuasion 101. And it's so weird that in our politics, we've become so polarized that a lot of people just scorn persuasion entirely. And they say, here's what politics is. It's taking my tribe and mobilizing them as well as I possibly can to just beat the snot out of your tribe. Mm. And and, you know, if you if you look at issue after issue after issue, um, either public opinion is not really on the side of the social conservative world, uh, or even if public opinion is on the side of the social conservative world, it's difficult to fashion or conceive of public policy that would advance those positions. So a lot of this is very, very complicated. A lot of this you're kind of got... Um, the odds are against you. And in that circumstance to sort of say, we're going to wrap our arms around cruelty and pugilism strikes me as extremely counterproductive in a pragmatic sense, even if it was morally permissible, which it's not. But isn't what people like Ahmari are getting at is that they feel 
because you said earlier that you have a conservatism has a minority position on these topics. But I guess people like Ahmari don't believe it's a minority position. They believe it is a majority position if only people would listen. And they say for a very long time, some of what the right has accepted is the underlying principles of the left. They've accepted it to the point where so much of the public space has been ceded. Yeah, I you know I think there's a couple of things. I think that there are some folks who say, well, what you call a minority position, you're just wrong, David. What we have are majority positions that absent um, unreasonable interference from the left, either through vote fraud or um, misuse of their own cult and abuse of their own cultural power are sort of withholding from us our rightful victory. That's kind of one point of view. Um, I think Soreb is more on the grounds of who cares? Who cares if I have a majority? And that goes back to the classical, the attack on classical liberalism. Because liberal democracies at the bottom line are still democracies. Um, even the counter-majoritarian elements of liberal democracy, like a Bill of Rights in the U.S. system, ultimately are subject, could be countered by a sufficiently large majority. So um, one of the critiques of liberalism is a critique against majoritarian rule. And so um, many folks, especially in a camp that's more known as integralist or dominionist in this more Protestant language, it's not. It, they're not necessarily after majority rule at all. Mm, they're they're after, just after the power to They're after Christian things. rule, correct, mm. yes. Uh, and, and Christian rule by a specific kind of Christian. And so yeah, that's, that's, that's where the, yeah, that's where the liberalism argument comes in. So let's get to the intellectual part of the argument. But I, I wanted to ask first, how dominant do you think then this Ahmarism within the conservative movement is at this point? Do you think it's a, a minority that's just very loud and pugilistic? So the pugilism argument on the on the right is, is I would say, by and large on Amari's side. In other words, this idea that... Um, we're we're not going to play by um, we're not going to play by gentlemen's rules here. We're gonna we're gonna roll up our sleeves and we're gonna have at it. I think that is a dominant uh, a dominant cultural characteristic of the right, and it's not because of Sorab, although you know he's had some influence for sure. It's more because of Trump. You know, right? If you if you saw what happened between 2016 and 2020, a lot of people who held their nose and voted for him in spite of who he was. By 2020, were the third bass boat in the boat parade because of who he was. They mm. embraced that pugilism, and Ron DeSantis has achieved prominence not by being the anti-Trump, yeah, but by being a more effective Trump in some people's eyes and a more disciplined Trump. So I think the pugilism argument, this idea that we're we got to go at this hammer and tongs, is the dominant argument. Um. On the other side, the intellectual argument, this idea that we should turn our back on classical liberalism, that is that is very definitely a minority position. Um, in, instead, you know, on the right, there's like a sort of a deep default um, respect and affection for the Constitution. Um, and the Constitution is one is arguably the most prominent, enduring governmental statement of classical liberalism in the world. So I think on the intellectual side, um, the default position of the right is still to support uphold classical liberalism in the form of the U.S. Constitution. 
what would you say the the delineation that the Ahmaris want on that topic is? Like, what where would you position them in terms of, uh, for example, individual rights or, um, yeah, yeah, where are they in terms of the intellectual argument? Much more negative on individual rights, much more, especially ex rights of expression. So one of the ways in which this whole argument kicked off was over drag queen story hour right in, right in public libraries and right and amari was and just, just so to, for the audience will you just explain what because that was a few years ago now so yeah yeah a, dra a drag queen story hour is when somebody uh, dressed in drag reads children's books to children now these are not this is you know a public library might host it and then families nobody's required to bring their families so very small numbers and groups of people ever did this or yeah. do this now but, but it became a were, kind of touchstone, didn't it, at the time? Like, and it still was, is. If you mm, if you pay attention right. to right wing media, it's there's it, drag. Any time a drag queen event happens anywhere, right wing media is all over it. And and so it became this. He was like, "There's no David Frenchian way." He tweeted something about, "There's no David Frenchian way to deal with these drag queens," because he knows full well I support free speech rights for every American, and drag performance is protected constitutionally protected expression i might not take i would not take my kids to drag queen story hour i don't go to drag shows but it's constitutionally protected expression and that really highlighted a different view of individual liberty uh, his view was and i think his exact words were i like to ban things whereas mm -hmm. i like to protect liberty individual liberty and ask people to exercise their liberty responsibly as opposed to banning things. And this is sort of where you're going to see the classical liberal versus authoritarian approach. The more authoritarian approach takes a very negative view of individual liberty because they argue it breeds individualism, yeah. which fractures community bonds and ultimately harms all of us. Yeah, and that is the, the root of their problem with libertarianism. Right. Exactly. That exactly. they feel that it's just that the conservative movement accepted libertarianism way too much. Mm -hmm. And that bred a scenario where today conservatives like yourself can accept something which most conservatives wouldn't want their own children to see. Right. But I, because, yeah, go on. I'm even worse. I would defend in court <laughs> somebody <laughs> right. who is engaging in expression I really don't like. Um, because I'm a strong believer, it is the response as in the in the in the Declaration of Independence, we're endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And one of the principal purposes of government is to protect liberty. And so, I think of a purpose of government in the United States as protecting the liberties outlined in the Bill of Rights. And I reject any sort of equating of libertarianism with libertinism mm. they are and, not the same thing and tell me what the difference is in your opinion libertinism is a, an individual choice i think an individual lifestyle choice it's more hedonistic in other words um it's not just that that legal rules liberate me i am, should also be liberated from moral rules um and and that I, I'm sort of a, a moral force unto myself. I define what is right and wrong. And I think that I'm much more a, a believer in the concept called ordered liberty. In ordered yeah, so you're liberty, not a, a libertarian, uh, libertinism. No, no, I am not a hedonist. I'm not libertine. I live a really conservative life. <laughs> but in order to oppose 
that view, you are not willing to ban things, you are not willing to remove the ability of certain groups to express themselves in the public space. Correct. And, and example, actively, yeah. one of my a core of my ethos is defend the rights of others that you would like to exercise yourself. So I'm a very strong defender of free expression, even expression that I don't agree with. I'm a very strong de defender of religious liberty, including of religious faiths I don't agree with. So, um, but the, the aspect of ordered liberty is really found in two documents read together. One is the Declaration of Independence, which prioritizes on the part of the government, the defense of liberty. And another one is a more obscure document from the founding era by John Adams called The Letter to the Massachusetts Militia. And in there, he talks about how important, how important personal virtue is to our constitutional structure. Because he says our constitution doesn't give government the power to deal with all human vice. And so therefore, it is the responsibility of citizens the moral responsibility of citizens to exercise their liberty for virtuous purposes. And so you, what you have is a social compact. The social compact is the government defends liberty and the citizens exercise their liberties responsibly. And that is a, when that works, it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. But what Amari and others are saying is, well, when people fail in their responsibility to exercise liberty virtuously, then the compact is broken and the government has to step in right. and eradicate that liberty in that particular respect. And I firmly disagree with that. And that was why I wanted to talk about the intellectual disagreements second after the approach disagreements, because mm -hmm. I think the approach disagreement is something that you know, people are familiar with. And then I thought right. it would be interesting to get into the intellectual disagreement, because when you do so, you see that there is quite a seismic difference in your political perspectives. Yes, and you talk. It's quite significant, actually. It's almost like two separate political parties. It is. It is. And it's weird that we're both considered conservative. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or we're, you know, and and so I tend to be kind of selective in how I use language. Um, you know, I will say that Sorab is on the right or he's right wing or and I'm conservative. Um, but I don't know that he would agree with that or his, you know, his allies would agree with the, that division. Mm. Um, but if people, if you want to be a suit, if you want to know how I describe myself and you're a super nerd, okay. uh, political nerd, I say I'm a pro-life classical liberal. Uh, in, in other words, I, I'm a pro-life person who believes in liberal democracy and the American constitution. And that places me pretty precisely in the spectrum. And cause the, the fights on the right are all over the place, just all over the place. And so someone can say that they're a Republican and it won't necessarily tell you their view of individual liberty or their view of the power and role of government and economic affairs or their view of foreign policy. That's right. how divided the right is right now. Right, right. Yes, not every conservative is hawkish on foreign policy. No. Certainly not anymore. No, we'll come to some of that. Um, but I want to keep going with this because the, the difference, it seems to me, is that People like Ahmari have this view of social societal morality. They believe right. that there are there are certain good things about the way that a society should organize itself. And that if individuals are not making those decisions themselves, which is their view is not happening, then it's the responsibility of the government to step in and order society towards this greater good. That, that's yes. the explanation, right? 
Yes, yes, right. yes. It's, and in fact, what they would say is that the society, by ordering the greater good, you're actually teaching and instructing the society in that good, that the law is a teacher. So mm. what they would say is it's not, in fact, the reality that we're oppressing anyone, that what we're doing is actually teaching and instructing and shaping the culture through the force of law. And so that the law is sort of the ultimate teacher. That is what tells you what is right and wrong. Whereas the more the libertarian view, my more libertarian view says, whoa, whoa, whoa. The what is right and wrong versus what is le should be legal and illegal are different inquiries. Right. Because there's a lot of things that I believe should be are wrong that I don't believe should be illegal. Um in part because I value human liberty a great deal, and also in part because I also think that by attempting to, when the state overreaches in its attempt to enforce a morality, it creates injustice. And so it doesn't, it's not like we're all sitting there like we're in Sunday school going, tell us, oh state, what, <laughs> tell us, oh state, what is the proper sexual morality? Tell us, oh state, what is the proper what are the proper substances to eat or drink? Yeah. Um, instead, we're often shocked or appalled by what the state says, defiant of, of the state, and then therefore see the state exercise its power and authority, often in ways that can be extraordinarily oppressive and unjust. And one of the areas that's kind of um, paradigmatic along those lines was the failure of prohibition, for example. The law mm. didn't teach people to not like alcohol. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Failure of many elements of the war on drugs, for example, um, where in many ways, as much as I think that drug use can be quite destructive to human beings, what's also destructive is the instruments and engine of mass incarceration and police enforcement that have built up around the war on drugs. And so it's not so simple to say, well, drugs are bad. Therefore, we should outlaw them. We have to say at what cost and, and what will be the consequence of this extension of state power. And that's where I, I have a much more cynical and skeptical view of the state as a moral teacher than some folks on the right, especially on the more religious quarters of the right do, even though I'm, uh, you know, even though I'm quite religious myself. Do you understand why some people in the other wing of the Conservative Party see you as, and people like you, as kind of have given up? They've ceded the battle <laughs> space. No, because you on, on these topics like the war on drugs, you say, well, let people decide what they want to do on premarital sex or the way that um, you know, people order their social relations, you say, well, let people decide what they want to do. And this sort of new breed of conservatism says, no, we have to tell them what's right and wrong. <laughs> I mean, yes and no. I'll start with a no. Um, when it comes to, oh, uh, well, you know, and I hear this all the time, and especially, you know, along with my last name, the uh, David French, part of the Surrender Caucus, you know, whatever. <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah, yeah. When liberty is threatened, I have defended it with ferocity. <laughs> so prior to becoming a journalist, I was a, I was a First Amendment and constitutional litigator. I defended the Bill of Rights in court. At one point, I think I might have sued more universities on free speech grounds than any lawyer ever. And so 
this sort of idea that, well, well, you surrender. Wait, what are you talking about? Um, I have filed cases in federal courts across the whole United States of America. I spent 21 years litigating in this arena. The last thing you would say about me is that I surrender liberty. Uh, but they no, don't I mean do. that you've surrendered liberty. They mean that you've surrendered morality. That's exactly right. So that's the the no and the yes. The no is I have not at all surrendered on liberty. And you and I might have completely different, you know, faith backgrounds, or we might have completely different political backgrounds, but I'm going to defend your liberty. And I would hope you would defend mine. But on the morality point, what does it mean to surrender? That's that's where I object to this idea that because I don't want to enforce, use the force of law in many respects to enforce my morality, that's not the same thing as surrendering because I still have a voice. I still have an ability to persuade. I still have an ability to win people over. And this idea, and I think that moral persuasion is far more powerful and enduring in people's lives than political force, than the force of government. And so I would say that they're actually embracing the less powerful over the long run, the less powerful path in rejecting that and rejecting the more powerful force, which is the force of persuasion. And so this idea that I've given up on marriage or sexuality or you name it because uh, I respect other people's rights or defend other people's rights who disagree with me and live different ways doesn't mean that I've abandoned my voice. And the voice, the human voice is extraordinarily powerful. And, and we've seen throughout history that the power of the human voice can overcome even ultimately even the most oppressive human systems. And so I think that that's where I really reject this idea that because I don't want to embrace government power that I've somehow surrendered. I would say I'm embracing the more effective the more enduring form of power, and that's persuasion. Okay. I want us to move away a little bit from the ideology towards the sort of day-to-day -day politics. I, I wonder what was the, well, first of all, do you still feel at home in the Republican Party? Oh, gosh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Even before I, Trump or just because of Trump? Oh, I, you know, before Trump, goodness, I was a 2012 delegate to the Republican National Convention. Um, I was a Mitt Romney delegate. I mean, I... I I had tried to get Mitt to become be elected president for you know both in the 08 cycle um, before I served in Iraq. I uh, created a kind of a volunteer organization for Mitt back in 2006, 2007, um, and then you know was a Romney delegate in 2012. I I was a lifelong Republican, and then in 2016 when Donald Trump became the nominee, I I said I I just cannot belong to an organization that has that a person of such low character in leadership. I'm just, I cannot be a part of that. So I- So I, it, was a, it was a Trumpian conversion. Yes. Yeah, yeah. rejection, I should say. Yes. Um, but some of the strains of thought were bubbling away for quite a while within republicanism. Yes. Some of them were, were trying to become mainstream because, I mean, Trump brought them out of the fringe, but they were still there. Yes. And, and my mistake, to be honest, just to be transparent, was I didn't realize how dominant that strain was. Uh, I knew that sort of Buchanan, America first, isolationist part of the party has always been there, always maybe 10, 15, 20 percent. I did not realize 
that this populist strain was so prominent and also that ideology was so optional. Do <laughs> you think so, it's the, the majority now? Right. I mean, I and, and I realize now in hindsight that I was kind of in a bubble in the conservative movement. I was part of the conservative legal movement, sort of the Federalist Society wing, which was, despite what many of its critics on the left say, which was, by my own decades of experience, committed to ideas and character. It was committed to uh, very particular kinds of, of legal philosophies, very committed to classical liberalism, very committed to individual liberty. These are ideas that were animating force behind the movement, and then also had a strong commitment to personal integrity amongst, you know, in that community. And, and so my view of conservatism was a kind, was a, was a combination of ideas and integrity. That's how I saw it. And then when Trump came and he blew up both of them, then, you know, what's there for me, right? Right, right. <laughs> if the ideas don't matter anymore, and if the integrity is not just optional, but often scorned, um, mm. then why, why would I want to be a part of that? I want to come to that in one moment, but I wanted to talk a bit about Iraq since you brought it up. Um, there's an aspect of the the Trump phenomenon and the like the rise of the left that I think is often understated or forgotten. And that is actually the invasion of Iraq. Because mm -hmm. before Trump criticizing the war, it wasn't something that conservatives did. A lot of figures right. on the right um, were really shocked when Trump started to to talk about how he'd never he'd always opposed the war and it was a terrible idea. Um, in fact, I want to quote this in the article where you declared that you'd never vote for Trump, even if he won the nomination some years back. Uh, you wrote, while my own military service can't compare to the sacrifices and courage of the true American heroes of the Iraq war, I didn't leave my home and risk my life in the fight against the world's worst jihadists to vote for a man who apparently believes that I was little more than a stooge of a vast conspiracy to lie our way into war. But that belief clearly resonated with millions of Americans on the left and the right. Yeah. No, absolutely. I I think that that was a piece of the puzzle for Trump, but a very small piece of the puzzle. Um, he really, he rocketed to the top with his vow of build the wall, his direct attack on immigrants, and crucially, when he refused to back down from any of that. Mm. And so... He really rocketed at the top when he gave voice to a big chunk of the GOP that is not just anti-illegal immigrant, but really is leery of immigration more broadly. And uh, and then also an even bigger chunk of the GOP that really wanted to see someone take on the media. And so when he when he said, when he, you know, when he made this announcement and he talks about murderers and rapists and all of that stuff. The normal script for a politician when they really overreach in their rhetoric is to apologize and to sort of backtrack and give it another try with a different language. And he was like, ah, nope, let's, you know, <laughs> I'm not yeah. apolo apologizing about anything. Yeah. And I think that's when he really rallied people. And the position on Iraq wasn't a deal breaker, but it didn't make or it didn't make him with the GOP, but it, it definitely wasn't a deal breaker. And and I think part of the problem is that post-Iraq, post-Katrina, post-crash, George W. Bush was not a, a, a target. There was not a big George W. Bush constituency left in the GOP. Right, exactly. 
Is yeah. that they were willing to give him up in order right. to, to get back into power. Yeah. Yes. But, but I want to go back to, because I wonder, you've said, I mean, you, you must be one of the few public figures that still defends the war. You haven't yeah. changed your view on the idea that the Iraq war was, would you call it a just war, a moral war? Yes, to both. Yes. Uh-huh. And, and you haven't changed your opinion. I mean, even given, I mean, of course, we don't have to go over it again. I mean, you know how severe and long lasting it was. And particularly in the Middle East, I mean, the consequences were catastrophic. You still haven't changed your view that going to war in that way was right. No, I've not changed my view. I do believe that there are tactics that were pursued during the war that made it unnecessarily long um, and made it worse. So um, in much the way the United States has conducted warfare, oh gosh, for a very long time in its history, it often stumbles very early before it writes the ship. And there were a, a number of stumbles in the execution of the conflict that had real consequences. And I think it's important to know those, highlight those, and acknowledge those. Mm. But and the underlying- Stumbles is a soft word there, David. I mean, you know, <laughs> Major mistakes. Severe mistakes. Of, yeah, I mean, the Major destruction of, of a great society. It's... I'm not sure the society was in a great condition when we arrived. Um, Iraq was, this was, yeah, we can have this conversation about the state of Iraq beforehand and what Saddam, and the threat of Saddam Hussein. But the, um, yeah, there were without question severe mistakes made early on that made the conflict worse. I don't think yes. that uh, I don't think that there's really much argument on that score. I do think that there is a very vibe, a very meaningful argument to be had on the wisdom of the underlying uh, initial attack and invasion. Uh, but I don't think there's any real debate that we didn't conduct the war in the most intelligent way in its first, in particular, first two to three years. Hmm. Well, let, let's, I mean, let's stick with the politics of it because I think you're right. I mean, we have different views on it, so I'm not sure, um, I'm not sure we have the time to- <laughs> We probably don't. But, don't. but in terms of the politics of it, I mean, don't you think that, because wouldn't you say now the Democratic Party definitely opposes the war, the Republican Party, what, 80%? would oppose the Iraq war, something like that. People would be maybe silent agreeers, but in general, publicly, they 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 believe in this this trumping an idea that was a mistake. Like we were saying, they throw uh, George W. Bush under the bus now. I would say amongst sort of the online right, that 80-20 percentage is about right. Amongst sort of rank and file, I would I would disagree with that. I think it's much more evenly divided. Um, right, but, but they're not saying it publicly. No, no, right, no, right. 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 And then, so do you think then that that battle has been lost to some degree and that people will just have to accept it and remain silent on it because the, the GOP has moved away from that position? Yeah, that's a very good question. I would say for the time being, the argument, I would say the argument for intervention for any kind of purpose related to democracy, that argument is gone. And mm. that ar that argument is gone. I would say that there I, I would say that, um, let, let me put it this way, because we are now in a very different strategic, we're in a very different world environment. Our biggest issue now isn't intervention in the Middle East. It's war in Ukraine, potential Chinese incursion into Taiwan. And these challenges are so different, it's apples and oranges. Mm. And so um, what did we learn from Iraq 
is not is 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 not something that you can easily import into the Ukraine conflict. It's not something you can easily import into a p- potential ty- conflict in Taiwan. And so that Iraq argument, because the salient geopolitical issues have shifted so much, um, it's hard to sort of see where the what's the state of the relevance of the Iraq argument right now, except right. as sort of a backward looking exercise of. Well, I don't want to listen to David because he supported the Iraq war. <laughs> right, right. And yeah. actually, even Trump doesn't doesn't frame his Iraq war opposition because he thinks it was the wrong thing to do or there wasn't sufficient evidence or any of those mm-hmm. arguments. He just says they were all wrong and I was right. Right, right. And right. so you can disregard any of those people yeah. because they, they supported the Iraq war. That's more where he's coming from, really. Right, exactly. Exactly. And then that's how it works as well. So someone will maybe object to my argument that we should supply uh, Ukraine with offensive weapons that can help it drive Russians off its territory. And they say, well, don't listen to him because he supported the Iraq war, which is not an argument on the merits of the of the the particular um, strategic decisions at stake in Ukraine, but is a shorthand way that people try to get you to be disregarded in general. Right. But but also, I mean, to be fair to that version of the argument, sometimes people feel that intervention, too much intervention, and even supplying heavy weapons to Ukraine is a form of intervention, is perhaps too much that you're involving people in endless wars. Right. I mean, that's certainly an argument, although I would say fighting towards a stalemate is uh, prolonging a conflict perhaps more than strate- uh, more than supplying someone for potential victory. Um, if your best sort of case is we're going to grind this out in a war of attrition where the the Russians are just going to beat their heads against the Ukrainian wall yeah. for week after week, month after month, year after year, um, I, I, I question how much that is actually more of a commitment to long-term warfare mm-hmm. than right. a desire to yeah. toss the Russians out entirely. And even some of your, your critics on the Ahmari wing might say, well, even if you don't, even if you think that there shouldn't be these endless wars, sometimes it is easier to do, I don't know, a surgical strike or right. a shock and awe campaign or whatever in order to end it quickly and swiftly. And by, right. by doing so, yeah, and by doing so, you save many more lives and, and much more problems and so on, which is roughly, right. I think, what you feel about Ukraine. Yeah. So that is another point of disagreement. I mean, we didn't get to the yeah. foreign policy disagreements that you have with that wing. Um, and I don't think we'll get to it because I want to move on to the left, actually. Sure. Move on to the other opponents that we haven't talked about yet, um, because w- when we're talking about in the introduction, we talked about how 2016 with Trump. I mean, it, it came a the conservatives had an inflection point there, um, but I wonder if you think that they the the Democrats also had that with Bernie Sanders. I mean, do you think that if Bernie Sanders had actually won the nomination, things would be as different within the the, the Democratic Party? as Trump winning had had an effect on the Republican Party? That's a really good question. And I would say it would not be as different because mm. Sanders would be an ideological shift for the Democrats, but not so much a, for lack of a better term, uh, temperamental or characterological shift. In other words, Bernie Sanders might be um, more to the left. Right. But, but he's he, on the left. He's of the left. He's right. more to, he might be more to the left, but he's of the left. And very critically, he's within the norms of character and conduct for a politician. 
In other words, that's interesting. Yeah. You you could say about Bernie Sanders, he's an extremist ideologically, but I have not heard people really call Bernie Sanders a liar. <laughs> I, haven't, right, right. I haven't heard people call Bernie Sanders somebody who would seek to overturn a lawful election, mm. uh, pay hush money to porn stars. So mm. what you have here is with Bernie Sanders, a ideological shift. You don't have the corresponding shift. So on the right, you had the ideological shift. And then you also had the temperamental slash character character shift, which was Trump's sort of bull in a china shop kind of mentality. And so in that way, what happens is Trump was sort of double destabilizing on the right. He destabilized it ideologically. He de he destabilized it from a character and integrity standpoint. Hmm. And that's just a bigger, bigger jolt. It's a bigger change, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, well, we're coming towards the end, so I wanted to start winding down by asking you about you being feeling that you're politically homeless. <laughs> and you were saying that you, you wrote in your book that um, as a man of the right, you still place great stock in the importance of individual freedoms. But do you think that, do you have any hope that the conservative movement will change course and that maybe you might find a place in it again? I have a hope. I don't have an expectation. Um, I think right now, when, when you have, when the largest, when the most salient political reality right now is this thing called negative partisanship, that's sort of the most, that's sort of the dominant aspect of our political culture. And that is what negative partisanship is, is that I'm a Republican, not so much because I love Republican ideas, but because I might hate or fear Democrats and, and vice versa. So long as negative partisanship and animosity are the are really the dominant characteristics of American political engagement, it is very difficult to be a classical liberal. <laughs> because what classical liberalism requires is a commitment to every person's liberty. It requires a commitment to every person's fundamental basic human rights. That's a baseline of classical liberalism. And so if, however, you're part of a other the, the rest of the members of your movement are ex full of animosity or hatred for the political opponent they become much less interested in their liberty they either don't care about it or they grow hostile to it mm. and so that tends to create a um an environment where politics is therefore seen as a zero-sum game if the right wins the left is going to enjoy it or is going to have a diminished existence in the country or if the left wins, the right will have a diminished existence in this country, less access to public facilities, less access to free speech, less you name it. Right. Whereas the classical liberal says, wait a minute, there are certain baseline elements of American citizenship that should not depend on any given election. There's a certain baseline place that everyone should have in this country that is independent of the political process. George Washington put it like this when he was writing to the Hebrew congregation of Rhode Island early in his presidency. He said, uh, and he quoted the book of Micah, and he said, every man shall live under his own vine and his own fig tree, and no one shall make him afraid. And the message there was clear that you can have a place in this land, even if you are a very small minority, religious or otherwise, you can have a place. And that's sort of the fundamental promise of classical liberalism. And it is a promise that is very hard to keep when we start to hate each other so much. And that's why I, I, I go around the country and I'll speak and I'll say, 
the threat to American liberty is actually less ideology than it is animosity. So this is where I wanted to, to, to make a link between, and I think you would make this link between your own political future and the country's future, mm -hmm. because you believe that the stakes are very high, that the the conservative movement continues to go down the road it's on at the moment. There is a chance that the country will end up in some sort of civil conflict. Yes. And, and my, my, my assessment and my message is that animosity is the emergency that we face. Um, and I've, you know, this idea that, uh, that Americans hate each other, um, politically engaged Americans hate each other is now so well established in the social science. It's just staggering the numbers. I mean, absolutely staggering the extent to which people on the right and left have profoundly negative views of each other. There's even a phenomenon, it's growing so bad that there is a phenomenon called lethal mass partisanship. And what is lethal mass partisanship? Lethal mass partisanship is uh, embodied by the idea that, that if you, um, that the world would be better off if some percentage of your political opponents just died, just died, <laughs> which is wild. I mean, just wild. And, and it is, but it's part and parcel of what we're seeing in the level of, of, of animosity. And, and, you know, there are, you, you could go to survey after survey after survey, and you would find that 85%, 90% of Republicans and Democrats view each other as hateful, as bigoted, as brainwashed. I mean, you name it. And that is that level of anger is creating its own crisis. And so one of the things that I think is a, a vital public service is humanizing, is the act of humanizing each other. And, and again, here's an area where the truth is on our side. One of, one of the most interesting findings of recent years is that hardcore partisans on the right and the left hate the other side, but they're also wrong about them. They think that their opponents are far more extreme than they really are. And so they're operating under a false view of their political opponents. And what's sad is the more political media you consume, the more false your view is. Hmm. So the most quote unquote informed citizens are often the most wrong. And, and so look, um, you know, I think it's a public service to humanize each other and in humanizing each other, I think we're going to reinvigorate classical liberalism in this country. David French, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. This has been The Lead from New Lines magazine. You can find David French on Twitter at David A. French and buy his book Divided We Fall at all good bookshops. This week's episode was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Faisal Yafan. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favorite podcast app or visit our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us. <laughs>